This sermon was preached by Peter Nakotra, head pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Woodhaven, Queens. Grace Baptist was planted in 2001 and is seeking to reach South Queens and North Brooklyn with the gospel. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.gbcny.org. Please feel free to distribute the sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Well, last week we looked at Matthew 26 and we saw Jesus entering the Garden of Gethsemane with his 11 apostles. Uh, And he takes Peter, James, and John with him a little further and goes to pray. And he asks them to stay and to watch with him as he is going to pray. Because he was deeply distressed, he said. He said his soul was exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. And we saw from Luke's Gospel that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood as he cried out to his Father. And what caused him such anguish and agony in his soul, in his humanity, was the cup. The cup that he had to drink. And we said that the cup was a figure of speech for the wrath of God, for the judgment of God, for sin. Uh, And in this case, specifically for God's people, the sins of God's people. And he feared the cup because he knew how much God hated sin, and he knew what an offense sin was to him. And he knew the divine consequences for it. So he feared the punishment that he would have to incur for his people on the cross. And in his humanity, he feared the unadulterated wrath of God, uh, that he would indeed have to uh, take upon himself an encounter in place of sinners. That the wages of sin is death, right? Physical death, spiritual death, and ultimately an eternal death. And, and in a sense, he would suffer all three. Add to this, said he was under the fierce attack of Satan, and by Satan to skirt the cross, to abandon the mission uh, as a sin substitute. So he prays to the Father, asking, if there is another way, if there is another way to save sinners. But he says in that, not my will, but yours be done. After praying three times, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, the Father says, no. There's no other way to save sinners but by the cross. There is no other way for God to be just and yet justify sinners. It must be through the cross. right? Which is known as penal substitution, which means Christ must legally be penalized or punished for the sins of his people. Well, Jesus gets up after praying for the third time and says, basically, I'm good. I'm good. I am ready to march to Calvary. I am ready to climb up on the cross and rescue my people. Right? I am now prepared to suffer God's penalty and wrath for my elect. And he comes back to his sleeping apostles and he says, wake up. And we see in verses 45 and 46, he says, behold... The hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Well, Jesus is now calm and he is now at peace with this gigantic task the Father has set before him. He knows that Judas and he knows that the multitude are coming to arrest him. And in verses 47 to 56, we read of this arrest. Uh, And in these verses, Jesus basically interacts with three groups of people. First with Judas in verses 47 to 50, which I just read. Uh, and then with Peter in verses 51 to 54, which Lord willing we'll look at the next time. Uh, and then with the multitude in verses 55 and 56. And what I'd like to do today is really just look at this interaction with Judas. Uh, and then later on at the other two as well. Uh, and so for today, with this interaction, I'd like to look at it using a three-point outline. And if you have a bulletin, it'll be on the back of that bulletin. And the outline goes as this. Firstly, the entrance of the betrayer, the sign of the betrayer, and the response 
to the betrayal. The entrance of the betrayal. Let's look at verse 47 again. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Right? Scriptures tell us that while Jesus is still speaking to his apostles, telling them that his betrayer is at hand, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, comes with a great multitude. And, and Luke and Mark each describe Judas the same way as one of the twelve. And the reason the Gospel writers are, are careful to point out that Judas is one of the twelve is because they want to emphasize the immensity of this betrayal. It is huge. They want us to see how repulsive this act is. That one of Jesus' hand-picked apostles, one of his close associates, would sell him out. Right? One who Jesus cared for and one who Jesus loved. One who Psalm 41.9 tells us was his own familiar friend in whom I trusted and who ate my bread with me. Right? Uh, and they walked together. And they walked together. And they lived together, so to speak. So calling out Judas as one of the twelve shows the deep degeneracy of this crime. How unthinkable that a trusted apostle, who, by the way, was the treasurer of the apostles, and one who was considered one of the cream of the crop, would commit such an act of treason. Now, Judas was at the Last Supper, or the Passover meal, just a few hours before, when Jesus dropped the bombshell and said to the twelve at that time, one of you guys will betray me. And the other eleven apostles, not trusting in their own hearts, they say, or they ask, Lord, is it I? Is it I? Am I going to do this thing? And, and feeling pressured by that, and not wanting to be the one guy who doesn't ask that, and be the odd guy out, Judas says to him, Rabbi, is it I? And Jesus responds to Judas, and he says this, You have said it. You have said it, which means, yes, it's you. And John, sitting next to Jesus, prompted by Peter, right, asks him, Lord, who is it? And Dan just read it. In verse 26 of John 13, Jesus says, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Then we read in verse 27, After the piece of bread, Satan entered into him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. And then in verse 30, we read, Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. And where did he go? Well, he went to the Jewish leaders. He went to go tell them where Jesus was. He had promised to betray Jesus. But every opportunity he had, he would betray him. And more than likely, he tells them that Jesus is in the upper room with his apostles. Only when he gets there with the multitude, he doesn't find him there. But Judas knows where to look for him. He knows to go to the Garden of Gethsemane because John says in John 18.2 that Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, the Garden of Gethsemane. But Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Jesus wasn't hiding out, right? He wasn't hiding out. He knew Judas would look for him and he knew where Judas would look for him. So he goes where he could be found. Now we read that Judas is leading a great multitude to come and arrest Jesus. And Matthew tells us this great multitude is sent from the chief priests and elders, and Mark adds, from the scribes. Which is another way of saying they were sent from the Sanhedrin, or the 71 ruling religious leaders of Israel. And John tells us that this great multitude, that in this great multitude there is a detachment of troops, which would be a cohort, he says, 
of Roman soldiers. And a cohort would be 600. So there are 600 soldiers. A cohort was one-tenth of a legion, and a legion would be 6,000. And so for you math teachers, you know that that would be 600. So there are about 600 soldiers, or Roman soldiers. And to that, uh, uh, the Jewish leaders would have, all, the Jewish leaders would have um, uh, come with temple officers. They would have had chief priests, and they would have had Pharisees, and probably mob followers as well. Anywhere upwards of 1,000 people are coming to arrest Jesus in the garden. And we're told that they're carrying swords. And the Greek word for sword here means like a dagger, so a small sword. Uh, and they're carrying clubs. And John tells us they're carrying lanterns and torches. And it's very interesting that they're carrying lanterns and torches because it would have been a full moon being the Passover. There was always, the Passover was always on a full moon, which would have meant the garden would have been as lit up at nighttime as it could ever be. Right? But the mob most likely brought the lanterns and torches because they expected Jesus to be hiding out somewhere in some nook or some cranny or maybe some under, under some olive tree. So they came prepared. Now the question is, why such a heavy artillery to arrest one man? One man who has never hurt anybody. One man who happened to be the meekest and most gentle man who ever lived. Right? One man who only loved everyone, including his enemies, and he helped all who asked for help, and quite honestly, he helped a lot who didn't. One man who did good to all and had compassion on the multitudes. I mean, this was serious overkill, right? Jesus would come willingly. He's never done anything to hurt anybody. It's kind of like killing a gnat with a sledgehammer or calling the fire department to come put out a cigarette. And this whole picture is really twisted. And it shows us the maliciousness and the wickedness of men's hearts. William Hendrickson, William Hendrickson said this, concerning this. He said, they came with torches and lanterns to seek out the light of the world. And they came with swords and clubs to subdue the Prince of Peace. You know, at any time, any one of them could have come to him. They could have come to him for forgiveness and life, and they would have found it. But now they're coming to take his life. They're coming to take his life. Well, the reason they're so heavily armed is because they're afraid. They're afraid. They're afraid that his apostles might fight for him. Judas would have heard the apostles say in the past that they would be willing to die for Jesus, and maybe he, he relays that to the Jewish leaders. Um, I believe, so they're afraid. I also believe they're afraid of the supernatural power. Right? They saw how the demons bowed to him. They saw how, how nature and disease bowed to him. They saw how even death bowed to him. And besides the supernatural power, quite honestly, they're still smarting from just that week of him single-handedly cleansing out the temple. Right? When he throws out the money changers and he throws out those who sell animals. And they also knew that in the past that he was, he was very, very slippery, so to speak, or he slipped away from, from those who would try to take him. Back in Luke 4, Jesus claimed that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies concerning the Messiah. And the men of the synagogue that he says it in, they, they, they threw him out of the synagogue and they lead him up to an edge of a cliff and they want to throw him off the cliff. But we read in verse 30, then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Again in John 8, 
He tells the Jews that before Abraham was, I am, a claim of deity. And in verses 59, we read this, They took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and passed by. He just walked away. John 10, after Jesus said, He and the Father were one. Again, a claim of deity. We read in verse 39 that the Jews sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hands. So it seems that Jesus has a way of getting away. And the Jewish leaders wanted to make sure that he didn't get away and that they got him. So they come maybe 1,000 strong to overpower him, right? to overpower the one that has all power in heaven and on earth. Right? He does. Hebrews 1 tells us that, that Jesus holds creation together by the power of his word. Now what's terribly sad here is that Judas, all right, an apostle of Jesus, is leading a multitude to arrest Jesus to arrest the Prince of Life. Or as Peter will say in Acts 1.16, he is a guide to those who arrested Jesus. When what he should have been leading, what he should have been guiding, was people to hear Jesus. And people to know Jesus. And people to believe in Jesus. And people to follow Jesus. He's identified as one of Jesus' own. And he should have been an ambassador. An ambassador for Jesus. But instead, he's an ambassador for the enemies of Christ. You see, Satan has entered Judas, as we read in John 13, 27. And now Judas has gone 100% over to the dark side. He has aligned himself with the enemies of Christ, yet at the same time he plays the hypocrite. He masquerades as an apostle of Christ. And there has always been, there have always been Judas Iscariots in this way, and there will always be. People who seem close to Jesus, closely connected, operating as Christian leaders somewhere, but they side with the leader of this world. They side with Satan himself. And Paul says so very clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 to 15. And I've read this before, but it's, it's again worth bringing up. And the issue and the trouble and the struggle going on in the church of Corinth is false apostles have infiltrated the church saying, basically, Paul's not even an apostle. Right? And so these hucksters and these, these, these uh, deceivers have entered in. And Paul says this, talking about them. Just, he goes, for such a false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And he goes, and no wonder. Like, this should not amaze us, is basically what he's saying. For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, because Satan does this, therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. See, what he's saying is, is that, is that there are people in pulpits today, many probably, who are actually under Satan's rule. Transforming themselves into Christian leaders, but they're not. So they're Satan's ministers because they advance Satan's agenda. And what is Satan's agenda? To worship Satan. To worship Satan. That's his agenda. And their hearts are anti-Christ. 
And they've sold out Jesus, either for money or for power or for pleasure. And they make peace treaties with the world. And they invite the world into the church. And they allow the world to influence the church. And what God calls sin and what God calls an abomination, they say, well, not really. It's not that bad. It's not really what you think. And in the end, what they do is they soft-pedal the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Christ alone. That he's not really the only way to the Father. There's probably quite a few ways. Probably. And you don't literally have to obey Jesus. You just sort of like him and love him and claim him. Right? And he doesn't really mean what he says or seems to clearly say in the Scriptures. doesn't really mean those things. So they diminish Jesus and they diminish his gospel. And, and, they, and they make them inclusive. A couple of weeks ago, we were sharing the gospel uh, out, out on the street by Queen Center Mall. And, and so some guy comes up to me and he says, uh, I'm not an atheist. I said, that's good. He said, uh, I'm not a Christian. I said, all right. He said, I, uh, he goes, I don't know, maybe I'm an agnostic. I don't really know. He said, but uh, I'm interested in Christianity to some degree. It's interesting to me. He said, particularly the apocalypse. Like, the end. What's going to happen in the end? Everybody wants to know that, right? People who never read the Bible... Like the first thing to do is they look at the book of Revelation. That's a big mistake. Right? And so, so he wants to know, well, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And so I'm, I'm turning, the, turning the conversation to the gospel. I don't want to get into the, the, you know, the, the, the fantastic ending stuff. Right? And so I, I share the gospel with him. And he said to me, you know, and, and I share that, you know, it's through Christ and Christ alone. Then he said, it's like, it's like you know, when you talk to somebody and all of a sudden they're like, switch on a dime, like, boom. He goes, wait a second. He goes, are you saying that if I don't trust in your God and trust in your Jesus, and then he uses a bunch of curses, which I won't say, he says that I am, curse, 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 condemned to uh, hellfire forever? And I said to him, I said, I'm not saying it in those words, but yes. I said, he went nuts. The guy went nuts, and here's what his problem was. Jesus alone. Like, like, that was too much. And it is like that for the world at large. You know, God's okay, whatever that means, right? God is okay because that's kind of nebulous. It could be a lot of things. But, man, when you pinpoint it to Christ and Christ alone, when you pinpoint it to repentance and faith in Christ and Christ alone, that is a very narrow little road right there. And that means you've got to surrender. You've got to give up. You've got to follow, right, willingly. Well, Judas is leading a multitude to find Jesus. And the reason they, they need Judas is because many of them would not know what Jesus looked like, right? There was no Instagram. There was no Facebook, no YouTube, no Snapchat or anything else I don't know about, right? Uh, there was no way for a lot of them to know. And they don't want to make a mistake and maybe one of his, his, his apostles or disciples would step in for him. They want to get the right guy. So they got Judas. Now, there's something amazing that happens at this point that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not record, but John does. John gives it to us. And, and I think it happens before the kiss, Judas's kiss, but I'm not sure of that. It may happen after. But either way, I want you to look at this. Turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. Please turn there with me, because it is absolutely fabulous and fascinating. And John gives us this little tidbit right here that sort of turns a lot of it. John 18, look at verses 4 to 9. All right. The context is they've come to arrest him. And there we read, 
Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, that's the, the multitude, whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. That's his apostles. Uh, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Alright, so Jesus moves forward to the multitude and he says, who are you looking for? Who are you looking for? And, and they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he. But you need to know, in the Greek, there is no he. It is just, I am. There's no he in the Greek. I am. And as soon as he says, I am, boom! They go backwards, they go down. They go backwards, they go down to the ground. And, and what Jesus is saying when he says, I am, is the same thing that God said to Moses in Exodus 3, 14, when Moses wanted to know, who should I tell the people is sending me? And God said to Moses, which was read today by Dan, say, I am who I am has sent me to you. And I am means this, the self-existent one. It means the eternal one. It means the one from everlasting to everlasting. You see, there's no way to give an absolute definition of God because God cannot be defined by human terms. To define him by a human term or terms is to limit him and God is limitless. So he describes himself as I am, which is the one who has always been. The one who has always been. And when Jesus says to the multitude, I am, he's saying, I'm God. I am the self-existent one. And for a brief moment, for a brief moment, the multitude was struck by the almighty presence and the almighty power of the Son of God. See what happens in that brief moment? It's like the veil is opened up for a, just a second or two or three. The veil is opened up and they get a glimpse at His majesty and His glory. And just being in His presence, just being in His presence for that little glimpse drives them backwards and to the ground. You see, they can't stand before Him. They can't stand before Him even when a glimmer of His glory is revealed. And I got to wonder if even Satan and the demons shuddered when that glimpse was given. It's as if Jesus is letting his captors know, I'm in control. I'm in total control. I'm no victim here, right? I am who I have claimed to be. And I've been claiming to be who I am my whole ministry. And you really don't know who you're dealing with. And they don't know who they're dealing with. And by the way, Judas is with the multitude, as we read, and he goes down too. So no one can stand in the presence of Jesus Christ unless he allows them to. Well, upwards of a thousand people, soon as he says, I am, boom, backwards and down to the ground, as if dead, I would say, in the presence of the I am. And I think David alludes to this in Psalm 9, verses 2 to 3, where we read, I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High, when my enemies turn back 
they shall fall and perish at your presence. So Jesus is allowing them to, to, to take him. But not before he gives them a tiny preview of what's coming one day. You see, he must go to the cross. The reason he was born was to go to the cross. That is his mission in life and he must fulfill his mission. The Father has given him an elect, a bride, and he treasures her and he values her. Right? And he treasures and he values each one that he came to save. And he will make each one of them spotless and blameless by paying for their spots and their blemishes. How? Upon the cross. Listen, this little display of his awesome power and glory, it ought to be a red flag for every unbeliever. It ought to be a red flag for every mocker of the gospel. Everyone who claims that they're not worried about the day of judgment. People say it all the time, I don't care. Ah, dead is dead. I'm just going in the ground. Everyone who doesn't care or want to hear about the day of judgment or standing before Jesus. Listen, if 1,000 men were driven backwards into the ground at a mere glimpse of the deity of Jesus Christ, what will the day of judgment look like for those who have rejected him in this life and they are standing before him in all of his glory? Because that's how he's coming back in all of His glory, when He comes back with His holy angels and He sits on His holy, glorious throne. What will it be like for those who have rejected Him in this life, who didn't want to hear it, who weren't concerned? Love the party in hell with everybody else. Right? I'm telling you, the fear and the paralysis will be unimaginable on that day. And there won't be a driving to the ground, so to speak, but rather a driving away into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Well, Jesus allows the multitude to get up. And he asks them a second time, who are you looking for? And they say again, Jesus of Nazareth. And then again he says, I am. But this time, without the glimpse of his deity. And he says to them, well, if you seek me, then let these, my apostles, go their way. Which fulfills what he just prayed in John 17 that night. There we read in verse 12, he's praying to the Father, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that's Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So even, even though all the apostles would flee, and they would all be offended by him that night, Jesus was still protecting them. He's protecting them. Even though up to a thousand men came to arrest him, he is still thinking about his sheep. And by the way, as you read from now all the way to the time he's literally on the cross, he's continually thinking about other people. Right? When, when he's thinking about Peter by telling him, listen, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you. He's thinking about the apostles. You guys got to pray. Be ready. Be alert. Pray. Spirit is willing. The flesh, the flesh is weak. Even when Peter be, denies him three times, which Christ said he would do, still, he's thinking about him and he shoots him a look, which we read in the Gospel of, I think it's Luke, uh, after Peter denies him a third time. When he's on the cross, he's caring about his earthly mother Mary. He says, you know, to John, take care of her. He's all, the two thieves behind him. One of them says, Lord, forgive me. Thinking about that guy. He's always thinking about others. You know the amazing thing? When he's on the cross, he's thinking about you and me. He's thinking about you and me. If you're his, he's thinking about you. Isn't that amazing? 
And here's the thing. He's still thinking about us. Because Hebrews, I think it's 7, tells us he's still praying for us in heaven. Praying that we would, we would grow in godliness and grace and our sanctification would be real. Well, he's thinking about him. And by the way, when Jesus says to the, to the, to the multitude, let these, my apostles, go, go their way, he's not asking for a favor. He's not asking, like, do this one for me. It's a, in the Greek, it's an imperative. It's a command. He's demanding it. He's commanding that they let them go and they can do nothing other than obey him because he gave a command. And so we see the entrance of the betrayer. Secondly, the sign of the betrayer, verses 48 and 49. Now, as his betrayer had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Well, Judas the betrayer gives the Roman cohort and the rest of the multitude a sign to let him know just who Jesus is. Right? Uh, and the sign is the one he kisses. And the reason, again, is because the multitude, they're not going to know him. They're not going to know visually who he is, uh, and especially the Roman soldiers. Uh, and they want to arrest the right man. So G- Judas devises a plan. The plan is, I'll give you a sign, and the sign is whoever I kiss. Now, this kiss is not a peck on the cheek. It's not an air kiss where you just sort of come close, but don't, don't actually touch. Right? It's not that way at all. This word kiss in Greek, it means to kiss someone eagerly, frequently, and warmly. Right? And we see this same word used, the kiss, of the woman who wept over Jesus' feet and kissed them in Luke 7. Remember the woman who was a great sinner and she's crying over Jesus' feet? Well, we read in 738 of Luke uh, right, that she stood at his feet behind him weeping and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, the hair of her head and kissed his feet. This is a, a passionate, warm, embraceful kiss. The same word is used in Luke 15 when the prodigal son comes running home and the, the father comes running to him and the father kisses him. We read in Luke 15:20, But when he was still a great way off, the father saw him and had compassion on him and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. That's the word right there. Kissed him. We also see it used in Acts 20 when Paul is saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders as he's on his way to Jerusalem where he knows he will be arrested. And we read in verse 37, Then they all, these are the Ephesian elders, Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. So as you can see, this word kiss means it's a word of great affection. Right? Uh, and, and this is exactly the kind of kiss that Judas plants on Jesus. This one of seemingly great affection. Right? And it's the height of hypocrisy. It is the height of hypocrisy and the depth of depravity to betray someone this way. I love you. I love you. I love you. Meanwhile, you got the knife and you're stabbing him in the back. I love you. I love you. And you're stabbing him. This is what Joab did to Amasa when David wanted to make Amasa commander of his army instead of Joab. In 2 Samuel verses 20, 9 and 10. And Joab was not a good guy. And we read there, but Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand. And he struck him with it in the stomach and his entrails poured out to the ground and he did not strike him again. Thus he died. They give you a kiss, brother. Boom. So it's a pathetic show of piety on Judas's, Judas's part. 
to pretend to affectionately love Jesus while betraying him to his enemies. It's mind-boggling how one could betray such perfect love. And you know what we have here? We have the kiss of death. This is the kiss of death. Judas has every intention of seeing Jesus arrested. Every intention. So he seeks to fool him with an affectionate kiss. And he says to the multitudes, Seize the one I kiss, capture him, bind him. And Mark adds, Take him away safely. In other words, don't let him escape. Don't let him escape. Now we marvel at how hard Judas' heart must have been towards Jesus that he would actually want him to be seized. Seize him. No one ever loved Judas like Jesus loved Judas. No one ever cared for Judas like Jesus cared for Judas. Jesus only spoke truth to Judas. And yet, Judas arrogantly says, Seize him. Seize him. Well, you guess what? Judas is now the hero to the religious leaders. You see, in their mind, Judas has saved the day. Judas saved the day for their nation. He saved the day for their own place so that Rome wouldn't come in and and take it away because the crowds were all following Jesus. Yet Judas goes down as a man who it would have been better if he were never born. Jesus said it would be better if the man who betrays me were never born. And friends, this shows you the depths of the human heart. It shows you just how wicked men can be. And apart from the grace of God, apart from the grace of God, you and I are capable of this kind of wickedness. We're capable. Oh, Judas was a bad guy. Oh, those people out there are bad people. Guess what? We have the same kind of hearts that could do the same kind of things and think the same kind of ways. We are capable of kissing the Son while at the same time saying, seize him. Apart from the grace of God, that would be us as well and could be as well. Well, Judas gives a sign to the multitude, goes up to Jesus, says, Greetings, Rabbi, and greetings means hail, rejoice, be glad. And then he makes this big show of affection to try, seemingly, to dupe Jesus and his apostles. But Jesus is not duped, as we will see in verse 50. And, and here we see the reality of what Solomon said in Proverbs 27, Kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Well, listen, many make a big show of affection for Jesus. Many do. Many shout out his name. Right? They say it over and over again. Jesus, I love Jesus, I love Jesus. They hop around, they flail their arms, they wear all kinds of Jesus shirts and hats, which, by the way, I wear myself, but everybody, I'm Jesus, look, I love Jesus, I love Jesus. Right? They do all of these outward things, but inwardly, there's not an ounce of love or passion for him. Right? They make the big outward show, Jesus, 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 but inwardly there's no love. There's no passion for the very one they claim to know and, and love. Right? And, and here's how you know it. Here's how you know it. Here's how it is evidenced by an unwillingness to obey him. You could say you love Jesus all day long, but if you won't listen to him, then you don't really love him. Because he said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. There's the evidence that you love him is that you listen to him. One commentator said this. He said, Christ's name is often slandered by those who make a loud profession of attachment to him. Now, although the text doesn't tell us this, I got to believe that Judas' betrayal 
must have broken Jesus' heart. He must have been hurt. must have hurt him that Judas was giving his enemies a sign on, on how to betray Jesus and how to arrest Jesus when Jesus had given Judas thousands of signs that he was the Messiah. Jesus had given Judas unbelievable information and evidence that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Right? And, and I mean, there isn't anybody in hell today that has had more information and evidence and signs than Judas. I mean, three and a half years of walking with Jesus, seeing miracle after miracle, and John tells us we can't even count them. If we were to write them down, the books of the earth couldn't contain them. And not only that, but, but Judas is given and were enabled by Jesus to do miracles for him, as the other apostles and disciples were as well. And so, he saw things that were mind-boggling. He did stuff that was mind-boggling. He heard absolute truth from the, from the truth-teller himself. So there isn't anybody in hell who's had more evidence, more signs of who he is than Judas. And no one probably ever will be. But he's rejected it all. He's rejected it all. He's rejected who the signs were pointing to. And now, as I said weeks before, he's disappointed. And he's disillusioned with Jesus because Jesus is not the kind of Messiah that he was looking for. So guess what? He's getting out. He's getting what he can. So he kisses the son so that men could seize him. And so we see the entrance of the betrayer, the sign of the betrayer, and now the response to the betrayer in verse 50. And there we read, But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Friend, why have you come? Right? Judas greets him with a kiss. And Jesus says, Friend, why have you come? And some translate this not as a question, but as a statement. It would read then, Friend, do what you have come to do. But either way, Jesus calls him friend. And the word friend means comrade. It means companion. And in Luke we read, he says to Judas, Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Now notice, Jesus does not say, traitor, why have you come? Or, you son of the devil, why have you come? Right? But he says, friend. Friend. Calls him friend because he cared about him. Calls him friend because he still loved him. He's not angry. He's not vengeful. I think he's saddened. He knows where the path Judas has taken is going to lead to. He knows it. He knows where it's going. He knows what it's leading to. And I see him calling Judas' friends as exposing to Judas' own betrayal. It's an act or a plea from Jesus to Judas to think about what he's doing. Think about exactly what you're doing, Judas. Think about it. And turn to me, even now. It's as if he's saying, Judas, think about the last three and a half years. Think about our relationship and what you've heard from me and, and, and what you yourself have done through my own power. And think about all the Old Testament scriptures that I have showed you and presented to you and I have told you how I have fulfilled them and you've seen it. Think about John the Baptist and his testimony of me. And think about the glory to come for those who are resting and trusting in me. And, and think about, Judas, the radically changed hearts and lives that you have seen because of me. I mean, look at Simon the Zealot and, and, and Matthew the tax collector. Two guys who are at opposite ends of the spectrum and would hate each other, humanly speaking. And they are both my apostles and co-laboring in my gospel. Think about that, Judas. 
And think about, about natural enemies like them. Think about Mary Magdalene and Zacchaeus and the woman by the well and the demoniacs and the man born blind and on and on and on and on. Think about those people who have been radically changed forever and ever because of, of me. Because they trust in me. Judas, think about all of this before you pull the trigger, so to speak. Think about it. Think about what I said just a few hours ago. How it would be better for the person who betrayed me that they were never even born. Think about these things because even now, even in the 11th hour and the 59th minute, right, you can put the brakes on. Think about it. You can turn to me and confess your sin. And even now, you could be forgiven. Yes, I must go to the cross and I will go to the cross. But Judas, think about it. I could be going there for you as well. It's as if he's saying, Judas, those 30 pieces of silver you got, they're going to perish. And your soul is worth so much more than those pieces of silver. I offer you life and I offer it more abundantly. So don't throw it away for money or for earthly glory or for religious prominence. Don't throw it away. You don't have to line up with the religious establishment. You don't have to do that. You don't have to lead this godless mob. You can surrender to me and I will save you. So Jesus' heart, I believe, is still reaching out by letting him know, by, by, by showing him what he's doing. He doesn't have to say anything, right? And later on, he's not going to say anything to anyone else until they ask him if he's the, the Son of God. He's still reaching out to a man who's his enemy. He will save a thief on the cross just less than 15 hours from this point. That next day, who has next to no light, next to no light, and is only hours away from dying. And, and Jesus is going to save that guy. On the cross, he's going to save him. While Jesus is on the cross and his life is pouring out of him and his soul is being tormented, he's going to save that guy who's dying next to him. So Judas, there's still time is what he's saying. But to reject Jesus is to nail shut your own coffin. It is to dig your own grave and to bury yourself. And sadly, Judas, he kisses Jesus warmly and he looks into his eyes. How could he not? They're, he's, they're this close, they're looking at each other. He's talking to him. He hears Jesus' words. But guess what? He disregards them. He's not moved by Jesus' love for him. He is not moved by that. He is not moved by Jesus' words. So he follows through with this great wickedness. Well, you need to know, multitudes hear the gospel. Multitudes hear the gospel. They hear the amazing unconditional love of Jesus. They hear it. They hear the invitation to come to Him. Anyone, at any time, come to Him and He will receive you. He will freely forgive you of your sins. He will lavish you with His free grace, which was purchased by His own blood. They, they hear this great news. They hear it. They hear about this inconceivable invitation Yet they follow through with their life of sin. They follow through with the lust of their flesh and the lust of their eyes and the pride of their life. And that's because they love their sin. It's very near and dear to them. And they can't cope with giving it up. Right? It's just too much. Jesus says, listen, I'll give you life, but I'm taking yours in return for it. You've got to give you... I, I want everything. I'll give you everything. I'll give you life eternal. And you'll know love and peace and joy and everything else that I have to give. And you'll know in ways that cannot be known apart from me. But I want everything. I want your life as a living sacrifice. 
You see, no one comes to Jesus and just, just comes a little bit. Oh, I'll give Jesus my Sundays and Wednesdays. He wants everything. He wants your heart. He wants your effort. He wants your time. He wants your money. He wants your sacrifice. He wants everything. And he's deserving of everything, is he not? And many hear this good news. I have, I have seen people so close to the kingdom. They know that he's the only way. They know that apart from him, it's an eternal death. It's a damnation. But they know they've got to give up their sin. And they don't want to do it. And they struggle. It's like in Luke 14 where with the king before he goes out to battle. He has to, he has to say, well, okay, if I'm going to go out to battle, I've got to see how many guys this guy has, this other king has, how much I'm going to need. Because I'm not going to go out to battle with a thousand men. If he's got 10,000, then I'm going to lose. Right? And what Jesus is saying is, you want to come into the kingdom? You've got to come empty. You've got to give up your sin. Well, some people say, well, I'm not, I'm not willing to give up my, my immoral life. I'm not willing to give up my, my sexual immorality. I'm not willing to give up my illegal job. I'm not willing to give up my, my, my stuff, my things, my, my heart. No, 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 no. Can't touch that stuff. Well, Jesus said, well, you don't have me then. Right? So they hear about it. They like it even. They, they're, 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 they're somehow drawn in some way to it. But they don't actually come in, they don't actually enter the gate because they're not willing to get rid of the stuff. They're not willing to surrender. They're not willing to say, I give you wholeheartedly all of me. They hear it, but they don't come. Right? And so they won't come because they don't want to give it up. Even though they, they hear about this great love. Because they love this sin. And thus, at the end, they reject Jesus. And they side with the multitude. They're not buying what he's selling at the end of the day. Oh, they may pay him some lip service, but he can't have their hearts. You cannot have my heart. Well, it may be that Jesus is saying to someone today, Friend, why have you come to Grace Baptist Church today? Why have you come? Right? Why are you here listening to a preacher who's already told you he messed up last week? Why are you here? Why are you listening to the Word? Is it because Jesus is all that thrills your soul? Is it because you are captivated by His beauty? Or have you come for another reason? Are you just going through the motions because this is what you've got to do? This is what is expected to do. Someone invited you, your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, someone makes you come, so you come. Is it just what decent people do and you have a shred of decency about you? Listen. Jesus Christ knows what you think. He knows how you think. He knows what you love. And He knows if you love Him. And He knows if you trust in Him. And if you're not truly saved, you need to know that He is willing to save you. He is willing to save you. He is willing to stand before you for His Father, to His Father. But you must come to Him on His terms. And that is lowly and contrite, which means empty of any self-righteousness. It means you must turn from your sins. And remember this, Jesus did not turn away from Judas in the garden, nor did He outright condemn him right there. He didn't do any of those things to him. And He won't turn away from you. And He won't condemn you if you come seeking Him with all of your heart and beseeching Him for mercy and grace. You see, He loves to save sinners. It's not something that He just does. He actually loves to save sinners. He loves to make enemies His friends. He loves to take the outcast and the filth and the scum and make them trophies of grace. He loves to do that. 
it glorifies Him and it glorifies His Father. So while there is still time on the clock, take hold of Jesus. And for those of you who know Christ as Lord and Savior this day, I encourage you, once again, stand amazed at the one who stood before his captors and allowed himself to be arrested and ultimately crucified to take you from out of the multitude and to make you one of his disciples. Amen? Let's pray. While the ushers will please come forward. Father, we do thank you for the great grace and mercy, Lord, that you give. Lord, thank you that although Jesus was in every way violated, Lord, in every way, Lord, he was uh, mistreated, falsely accused, beaten, falsely, and on and on and on, but Lord, he did it, willingly did it, Lord, he accepted it, Lord, so that he could, Lord, free men from their enslavement to sin, that he could literally pay the price that would free men forever. And Father, I thank you for that, and I pray that, Lord, your people would not think lightly on these things, but Lord, that we would uh, Lord, love him all the more because of that. And Lord, for the souls or soul in this place that Lord, does not truly believe, has not truly come, has not truly surrendered, Lord, would you this day break and raise up, Lord, the lost in Christ, in his name. Amen. Amen. Anthony, would you pray for the beginning? Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.